0: Dublin.
1: welcome to the quarantine tapes a daily podcast from onassis la and Dublin. hosted by paul
0: holdengraber this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing Please speak with Beth Tan Win.
1: Hi, Paul. It's uh, me speaking.
0: I am so happy to to have you on the line. Thank you so much for taking my call and for being part of the quarantine tapes.
1: Oh yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: It's it's really it's really wonderful that you can find a Thanks moment.
1: Me.
0: Um, tell me, where, where do where do I find you at this moment?
1: I am in uh, Pasadena, California, having recently moved here from Los
0: Angeles. And what are your days like during this quarantine?
1: Well, I have a six-year-old son and a, a six-month-old daughter, so a lot of the days is just consumed with online schooling at home and sleep training at night. So not getting a lot of sleep. <laughs> um, thankful if I can find an hour of time to write something besides emails and uh, just, of course, now uh, being obsessed with Twitter, social media, the news. To Follow what's been happening for, uh, the past several days. Uh, you know, we've been under curfew for three days now here in Pasadena and Los Angeles County. And of course, this is all due to the completely failed response to the murder of George Floyd and the whole history of anti-Black violence and the deaths of so many African Americans at the hands of are militarized police. So all of these things are are completely consuming my imagination at this point.
0: Uh, many, many things are keeping you up at night.
1: Absolutely. Um, it
0: helps of course, you
1: know, to have a well-stocked bar as I do. <laughs> um, <laughs> we find ways to relieve our stress even as we also try to do our work and to think about and to work for you know, issues of social and economic justice and racial justice. But, you know, one of the ways in which I'm just trying to find some creative outlet besides writing is learning how to be a bartender at home and at night. Uh, that's my way of blowing off steam along with taking walks in the neighborhood uh, with my wife.
0: That you've said that we only have hope if we recognize just how difficult the world is. What does that really mean to recognize just how difficult the world is well
1: i think that you know here in the united states uh, we've seen many crises during my four plus decades of living in this country and at every step i think oftentimes our leaders but also many of the my fellow americans want Relatively easy responses. Um, let's all get along. Let's affirm our humanity, our our shared Americanness. Let's affirm this idea that uh, the United States is an imperfect union, but is inevitably moving towards harmony and justice. And I think that those are those those uh, answers are too too simple for the difficulties that we confront. And so, for example, just to discuss uh, this murder. of george floyd and and this long history of militarized police violence against african americans it's not and it's not a simple issue Uh, even calling for you know uh police reform is hardly is not going to be enough to address the complexity of the issue so if we can hope but we have to hope with with an understanding of how deeply interconnected all of these issues happen to be so we cannot actually stop the killings of black people by militarized police only by talking about the police, although that's absolutely crucial, but by understanding how the situation that we're in is an outcome of the ingrained racism within American society since its very origins. Uh, and that, this is not an accident. This is a, a structure. This is part of the structure of American society since the very uh, settling of the colonies and the origins of this country in
0: genocide and also in slavery. complexity, and not not taking in um, a kind of cheap, a cheap view of hope.
1: No, I think that's absolutely crucial. I think that we need hope. Um, But the hope that we have has to be born from a recognition of how not only that we're all connected, but how each of our issues is connected as well. So in my own work, for example, you know, I write books about refugees and war. And part of what I try to do there is to argue that the experiences of refugees and the experiences of a war like the Vietnam War, which brought me to this country cannot be discussed in isolation either. You know, that war produces refugees, uh, that the experience of civilians and refugees are also war stories and that the war in Vietnam was not an isolated circumstance. If, even if we were to look at it just from the American perspective, which I try not to do, but just from the American perspective, for me, the war in Vietnam was an episode in a much longer history of warfare that the United States has been conducting since its very origins. And certainly, if we look only at the Pacific, that the United States has been waging wars since the Philippine-American War of 1898, that have been designed to establish American domination there and that so many Asian American populations are here in this country as a result of these wars that the United States has fought and that this extends to what the United States is doing in the Middle East. If we understand this complexity, then you know, going back to the George Floyd killing, we see another layer of this complexity because while a white policeman killed George Floyd, a Hmong American policeman who was his partner stood watch protected his partner and did nothing to stop the killing of George Floyd. And Hmong Americans are here because they fled as refugees from the Vietnam War, where they had helped the United States fight against communism. So the place of that Hmong American police officer is very complex. And the symbolism of him standing there brings up so many issues well, about that- both Asian American.
0: Go ahead. No, it it, it reminds me of, you know, the extraordinary line of Shimas Heaney who says, no innocent bystanders.
1: No innocent bystanders. I mean, and and that is, I think, hard for people to grasp because when we say bystander, we don't just mean literally the person who's standing there at the moment that something is happening, although that is true. But I think we're all bystanders in American society now, especially for social media. We can see all these things taking place. But... You know, to to think about the complexity of both, let's say, racism at home, but also warfare abroad, we're all complicit because we're all involved in this in one way or another, whether through voting or not voting, paying taxes, um, endorsing the American military industrial complex by not opposing it. We're all innocent bystanders or not so innocent bystanders in what's what's happening when the United States uh, undertakes its foreign policy. And certainly that, you know, what the Black Lives Matter protests and the protests in the streets of the United States are doing right now is is trying to demonstrate how, uh, not, not only about structural racism, but how we're all complicit in what's taking place.
0: You know, you said a, a moment ago that, of course, hope is necessary. And I'm, I'm always reminded of, of that line of Chomsky where he says, optimism is a strategy for making a better future. Because unless you believe that the future can be better, you are unlikely to step up and take responsibility for making it so. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about the, the, the complex relationship between um, knowing and action, believing that there could be a better future. You were mentioning your two children. You know, what kind of future can we... We hope for them. What kind of action can we take so that we're not just those bystanders?
1: I think there are so many actions. Uh, from in, in my own life, you know, as, as a teacher and as a writer, I think that, the, that there are actions that I take all the time in the classroom. For example, what I teach my students, how I teach my students. As a writer, what do I write in my fiction? Uh, Who do I who do who do I cast as my characters? What kind of plots do I choose? Uh, What do I write about in my op eds? These are all really crucial choices that we that we make. And you know, we can have a whole conversation about the the responsibilities of American literature, for example, and what writers write about. But I also having having become a father, I think quite a bit about the actions that take place within our own homes. And while of course nothing will change in our society without structural
0: yet Hi, Paul. hello so we we, we got interrupted no <laughs> yeah, we did apparently
1: by an emergency notification on your on your uh, phone I yeah
0: think. that's right public safety announcement telling me that i need to be home at 6 p.m which happened yesterday yeah, and absolutely. the day and the day before and and so on you were talking about what what you can do both as a professor you teach at usc and what you can do within the confines of your own home and and uh um, right. how that might also spill into uh, the various ways in which you teach and i might even ask you at this moment you know how both the pandemic and um the consequences of of what we're living now might make you return to teaching in a different way? If so, in what way?
1: Well, I, I think before we were cut off, I was talking about the need for obviously addressing structural inequities and injustices. Absolutely crucial. We can't change our society without that. But each of us also has individual relationships domestically with our friends, families, and so on. And as a father, I think about what I teach my children, what my children are being exposed to, even at the age of six years old, for example, my son has already seen and heard racist words in preschool and in, and in first grade. It's, it's deeply, deeply troubling to me. So we do have, we have had conversations, actually, about some of the things that are, that are happening today. And I think that we as parents don't do our children any favors by not talking to them about these types of things. And, and of course, you know, racism and other kinds of inequities reproduce themselves, not only <clears throat> Structurally and institutionally, but at the level of families and what the parents teach their children, so we're all morally culpable in this kind of educational work that we do within our families and our friends. But in terms of teaching, you know, I think that I I find I find my origins begin intellectually as someone who became an Asian American, which is a you know particularly American kind of manifestation of, of race. You know, because when I was growing up. Uh, in San Jose, California in the 1970s, 1980s, I was growing up in an atmosphere of sort of benign racism where when my friends and I would gather, you know, on campus in high school in a primarily white school and we were Asian-Americans, we had no language by which to describe ourselves. So we called ourselves the Asian Invasion. (laughs) So we are an example of how we were internalizing the racism of mass culture in American society. So to become an Asian-American and, and to have a name, to have a history, to have a consciousness was enormously important to me. And, you know, was, was an absolute part of my awakening as a writer and as a, as a teacher and intellectual. And in the context of Asian Americans, the idea that representation matters and our stories matter and our narratives matter has been absolutely crucial. It's driven my life. But I think the last, the, the, the gravity of the last few years has also made me think that the arguments about representations mattering are, are, are not enough. You know, representations matter when it comes to racism, but, uh, I don't know if they would have saved George Floyd. And so in the course that I'm teaching this fall, uh, the, the emphasis is not on representation. It's actually on decolonization. And this mm-hmm. goes to the idea that, you know, I've, I've heard this over and over that the United States is an example of a successful colonization project, completely successful colonization project because we were never defeated. Americans were never defeated. They were never kicked out as they were, as the French were in Haiti, for example, or Mm. or the Europeans were in many countries. Mm. And white settlers came and they stayed in this country, a successful colonization project. Only we don't call colonization by that name in the United States because it's anathema to how we imagine ourselves. Instead, we call successful colonization the American dream. That's how we make, make ideological sense out of that. And there's no way that we're going to be able to address all of the inequities of our society without going back to the roots of this country in, in colonization and realizing that all these issues that we're confronting with violence against African-Americans, anti-Black violence, police militarization, um, the fact that you know COVID is taking an exceptionally high toll among African-Americans, Latinos, uh, Natives, immigrants, undocumented people all of this can be traced back to the colonized origins of our country so for me the new emphasis that I have to foreground much more is the idea of decolonization. what would that mean what does that entail how do we how do we articulate all of our mutual and individual projects about justice together around this idea that uh, colonization remains you know at the root of this country and its inequities
0: you know, you've said about writers like, like Tony Morrison and Ralph Ellison that their model of aesthetic and political commitment was very important to your work. Can you can you say more about that? And I, I, I think in some way I imagine that's a segue to the kind of class you might be teaching. Perhaps I'm wrong. Oh,
1: absolutely. I, I think, you know, I... I uh was so blown away when I encountered the works of writers like Toni Morrison and, uh, and Ralph Ellison uh, and Maxine on Kingston and, and many others you know, who I felt were working at the highest level of aesthetic and political commitment. And by that, I mean, of course, all writers want to work at the highest level of aesthetic commitment. We all want to do the best that we can do artistically. But we also live in a country in which the idea of politics and art is a very troubled one. You know, this is a country with a deep uh, anti-communist vein and uh, the events of the, uh, you know, since since the 1930s onwards have have led many Americans to associate art and politics with some kind of communist orientation. And because of that, there's been a great rejection of the role of art in politics. But for people who have come from artists or writers who have come from, you know, racially subjugated or colonized uh, communities, there's no way you can separate art from politics because your entire existence is politicized because of these issues of racism and, and colonization. So I think the writers I admire the most are the ones who, who, who recognize this intersection of art and politics and you know, want to both be the best writers that they can be, but also to try to figure out how to address politics in their work uh, and how to do it in such a way that readers, in this case in literature, are brought along with them to to understand uh, these crucial kinds of political issues. So, of course, works like Beloved or Invisible Man or The Woman Warrior do these kinds of things. And in in my own work, especially with my novel The Sympathizer, I aspire, I hope, to try to do something of the same sort.
0: Are Toni Morrison and Ralph Ellison uh, writers who will be on the syllabus for for your decolonization um, class?
1: I, I'm still working through the syllabus, but I think that, um, for me, the, the course is going to start off with a lot of, of, of earlier writings on colonization uh, from outside of the United States. People like France DeMar.
0: I was thinking example, I was thinking of him. So important. Yeah. So important and so not, you know, not, not read enough.
1: Not read enough, shockingly, and still really relevant with Wretched wretched of the Earth and Black Skin, White Masks, which is still completely applicable to what's happening today. Tremendous. So we're going to start off... Yeah, and we're gonna start off with him. Yeah, and part of what's important about Finan's work is that his argument that, you know, violence is violence in the struggle for freedom is, is absolutely crucial. And he was writing at a time in response to the Algerian revolution against France yeah. and the, the role of violence both as carried out by French colonizers and by the Algerian revolution. And I you know, I come from a country, you know, Vietnam, in which the same arguments have been made that violence is absolutely crucial to deposing the French and The Americans, But I want to end on a note in this course of thinking about nonviolence, not just thinking about what Martin Luther King argued, for example, because if we go to talk about Martin Luther King Jr., as as so many people are referring to today, we have to recognize that he didn't simply call for nonviolence. You know, he called for nonviolence in relationship to a socialist, anti-racist, anti-imperialist, anti-militarist revolution, which the majority of Americans don't want to confront. So non can be very complex, and we'll end with Judith Butler in her newest book on the importance of non And along the way, we'll talk a lot about, you know, the relationship of decolonization projects outside of the United States, but what's happening here. So I want to focus on indigenous and native struggles, for example, that are very contemporary around things like pipeline issues and standing Rock and these social justice efforts around that and the uh, and efforts of writers to also try to imagine this history and where it can go. So you know, the writer I'm thinking about right now, who I just most recently read, is John Keane and his book Counter Narratives, which is a brilliant work that imagines the entire arc of colonization from the first moments of white settler arrival uh, in the Americas to the, the present through these brilliant you know, short vignettes. And so there are writers out there who are using their fiction and their poetry to try to get us to think about this country in a
0: completely different light. And telling different stories. What is so interesting, this this comment you make in Nothing Ever Dies, you write, until those whose memories are left out not only speak up for themselves, but also seize control of the means of memory-making, there will be no transformation in memory, which also brings to mind a, a, a line that I'm sure you're familiar with that haunts me of John Berger, where he says, never again shall a single story be told as though it were the only one.
1: I think we're all, I mean, I hope we're all invested in Berger's idea, you know, that of course we need a multiplicity of stories for a multiplicity of, of peoples and, and communities and truths that are that are out there. And of course, all these stories are being told every day uh, in terms of uh, the individual interactions that we have. You know, people are always speaking up and speaking out. But the, the problem is is not that the, the people are voiceless. And with Aaron Dottie Roy, one of your- Yes. The people you brought out to speak at the New York Public Library has with, already said With, this, with, with you, that, with you, with you. Yeah, exactly, it a great event. But it's not that people are voiceless, it's that they're suppressed. You know, it's not that they're not speaking out. They're not given the chance to amplify their voices through publishing houses, through Hollywood and things like that. So this goes back to the whole idea of representations mattering. Of course, it's important that we have multiple stories and multiple representations. But as long as the institutions that produce these stories and representations and give space for these voices and so on are controlled by a certain... You know, a very elite group that is not racially diverse, not economically diverse, there's no way we're going to have true equity and justice at the level of stories and storytelling and representation. So, and then this inequity at the level of the structures of who controls the means of representation, again, goes back centuries and centuries to who accrued power in this country. So, writers are crucial to all of this in terms of writing stories and making representations, but of course, editors and agents and publishers and and all of that is crucial too, and, and uh, we face it's a, you know, a, large, a long struggle in terms of getting equity behind the scenes of the means of representation as well.
0: But partly also because the, the writers publish books that editors take, and those editors themselves uh, come, come from a world which is not necessarily and not often enough diverse.
1: Absolutely, and I've had so many conversations with writers who have had their own personal horror stories of confronting the inequities behind the scenes. You know, even well-meaning editors, and there are, of course, many well-meaning editors out there who come from a certain kind of uh, social and economic background have a hard time understanding uh, these these questions of, of how writers from subjugated or marginalized or colonized communities or whatever you want to call them how they articulate their visions and how those visions may be different from writers with great privilege. And so it's challenging to be, to be a writer committed to your own truth and your own, your own justice, and then to go up against a publishing apparatus that is, you know, just by weight of its own inertia is not, it's going to have a hard time understanding your story.
0: You know, you, you you said about the book that you're writing now for the, I think for the past few years, you, you ask yourself, what would a post-communist poli- poli- polities that is not also a pro-capitalist politics look like? I'm wondering how you're answering that question at the present moment. It must have taken on different meanings as of recently.
1: Well, I think for me, to go back to the idea of Sinan, we we realize what these societies look at look like through the struggle to define them, and the struggle to define the society has been going on for you know in this country for decades. And so I think there's certain things that to me seem seem clear that the capitalism on which this country is built is designed in order to extract profit, and in order to do so, it needs to extract labor from marginalized populations. And so to imagine in a United States that is economically just and racially just seems to me impossible to do within the capitalism that has built the United States. I mean, the capitalism that has built the United States has only been able to do so through genocide, through slavery, through the occupation and colonization of, of lands held by native peoples and by uh, Mexicans through the importation of cheap racialized labor from Asia and slave labor all of these things have helped to build this country so how do we how do we can we actually achieve an economically and racially just society by just trying to reform capitalism i mean some people are trying to do so but we're seeing enormous resistance to that and so the struggle is ongoing, um, and all the issues are interconnected. I mean, people are protesting in the streets because of Black Lives Matter, because of anti-black uh, violence and, and police violence, but because all these issues are completely tied in to economic inequities and class inequities in our society as well. So we're gonna have to overturn all these types of unequal structures if we're going to hope for this more just
0: society. In, in closing, Sadly, might I say, um, you mentioned Arundhati Roy, and you know she recently wrote about the pandemic maybe being a portal. And I'm I'm curious, you know, in your more complicated hopeful moments, what might that look like? What can we hope for? A portal. Well. Yeah.
1: A portal. We're standing on a threshold. We 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 can go forwards or backwards, or perhaps we can choose different different doors. Mm-hmm. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing now. Um, COVID has brought on enormous crises in many many countries, and now in, the, in this country at least, it's compounded by this eruption of uh, protests and these, these, these calls for a radical change in our society. And as many African American writers have already said, you know, um, the, the return to normal is not what we no. should be asking for, because the return to normal means a return to normalized conditions of oppression, right? Uh, for so many people. So, and again, that we confront a society in which normal means privilege for one one group of people, and normal means oppression for another group of people. So, the stand at the threshold means that we hopefully can actually see that this is. The inequities these are the inequities within our society and i think watching these these protests unfold and the and the violent response to them hopefully is revealing that more and more to different portions of our of our of our country and so i don't know what i don't know i mean what the answer is going to be because no. uh, I, I i it's hard to know it's hard to know what the the response of the trump administration and different you know state and Municipal authorities are going to be to these protests that are taking place, and so far, in some instances, the response has been wrong. The response has been to roll out the national guard, to roll out militarized vehicles, to roll out armored police. This is the completely wrong response. That's that's an attempt to shut the door on the future. You know, we have a door that's open. You know, the leadership of this country and of the cities and the states should be out on the streets, meeting with people and talking to them, and you know, proposing policies <laughs> or, or, or acknowledging the inequities that exist and for the most part associated uh, at the national level that, that leadership is not taking place so the possible further responses are, are, are quite terrifying to, to contemplate um, so we, we Aaron Dutty is absolutely right whether she's talking about India or whether we're, we're, we're talking about here this, this is a threshold moment it's not going to be resolved tomorrow um, it's we're in the middle of a crisis that will take months or years to, to unfold, but we have a chance.
0: We have a as chance. We have a chance, and we have a chance particularly if we understand both the history of this country and of uh, countries around the world, and if we understand, as, you, as we said at the beginning, if we recognize just how difficult this world is and don't take don't, I think we at- don't take simple answers for granted.
1: Yeah, and I think historically at this country, we see that there were radical moments of opening and change in the 1930s and the 1960s, which were related to each other. That's a long historical moment. And since the 1960s, we've been in another long historical moment, which is the efforts of certain parts of this society to roll back the openings or to close the openings that we saw in the 1960s. And those efforts have been fairly successful. And so, from the 60s up until now, there's been a concerted effort to push back against the progress that was enacted in the 1960s and now we see I think hopefully the counter response to that when we're opening another historical moment and so i I, I remain guardedly optimistic I remain hopeful, but I, of course I remain worried and scared about what the response might be as we all should be.
0: yet I can't thank you enough uh, for this call um. I wish we had more time. And I look forward when to when we see each other again. Thank you, thank you for taking the time and stay safe. And um, Thank you so much, Paul. Uh, thank you. you. Thank you so much. All the best to you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. To
1: support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com slash support.